Amen. Today we are continuing our teaching series, Reveal, which is a study in the book of Titus. In case you weren't here the last couple of weeks, the book of Titus is written by the Apostle Paul, so it's indeed a letter, a letter written by the Apostle and directed towards his young associate, who is the pastor in the island of Crete. And so what we know from the scriptures is that Paul had gone to the island of Crete, he had shared the gospel, he had planted churches. And then he left young pastor Titus to put in order, as we saw last week, into all the churches and to help them to be healthy. And so it's a letter written 2,000 years ago to an actual pastor named Titus, to actual people that live in the Mediterranean Sea. And even though it's an old book, it was written, yes, by Apostle Paul, but inspired by the Spirit of Jesus himself and is profitable for us today. And so there is much that the book of Titus has to speak to us today, meaning in the Emirates Park Zoo, the Evangelical Community Church off-island. God has a lot to say to us. And so just to review, let's read verse 3. Titus 1, verse 3. says, At the proper time, this is God, He manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. This is a very key verse that sets the table for the entire book that God has manifested, He has revealed, manifested the gospel which has been entrusted to His people. And so we here, meeting in Abu Dhabi, have been entrusted what has been revealed. The very gospel itself belongs, of course, to God, but He's giving it to us as a deposit for us to then invest in other people. So that's what we're about at ECC Off-Island, is to glorify God by making and then by developing disciples. That's what we do. We see people transformed by the Spirit of God. The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this theme of, of revealing the gospel in the book of Titus. And today we're continuing by talking about revealing the gospel in our foolishness. Thinking, that sounds kind of crazy. But that's exactly what we're talking about today, is revealing the gospel, yes, even in, even through our foolishness. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, what we're looking at this morning. Now, the previous section we looked at last week, which described godly leadership being an example for the entire church to follow so that we're all healthy. The last few words in verse 9, the previous paragraph, you might remember, it says that those that God has given the privilege and the responsibility to lead, it says, are to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. And so he is saying that those in leadership, elders and pastors, are called here to rebuke those that would say something that would be unbiblical. In verses 10 through 16, he defines exactly how that should happen. So let's read verses 10 through 16 together. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, 
not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their words. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, if you're a guest today, we are very thankful to have you here today. And you're probably thinking, man, I don't know about this passage that they're preaching on today. It, it's, it, it doesn't seem like it's a very uplifting, a very fun text. But see, that's the beauty of looking through God's Word and picking a book, in this case Titus, and working through it from verse 1 to the last verse. Because what it does, honestly, it forces me to do something. It, it constrains me as, as the one that has been given the privilege of sharing God's word with you is I could very easily pick and choose all kinds of passages that I think would be fun and what everyone would just love and it's so much better we might think, but that's actually not better. It's like eating vegetables. No one likes to eat vegetables. If you do, I'm sorry, but most people don't love vegetables. They'd rather eat, I don't know, cake or ice cream or steak or chicken, or you name it, that tastes better, or you might enjoy more, but if you never eat vegetables or fruits, if you don't have a balanced, healthy diet, you're not going to be healthy. And so what happens is when we look at God's Word expositorily, when we look at it and we exposit and look at the verses in context, we're eating vegetables. And today is kind of eating some vegetables is what it is. And so it's part of a healthy diet so that we're all and so let's look at this together, okay? Before we're too hard on, on the Cretans in the original context, man, they were foolish, and man, they were lazy, gluttons, and beasts, and all of this negative language. The reality in this text is showing us that there is foolishness in the church. There was foolishness in the church in Crete, and if we're very frank, there's foolishness in every church. And you know why? Here's why. Because all people are messy. We're all messy. Now, you might think, well, I'm not messy. I'm neat. Now, my husband, he's messy. No, I don't just mean that he doesn't clean the sink, leave clothes on the floor, you know, bad hygiene. I'm not talking about that kind of messy. I'm talking spiritually, emotionally. Every one of us has struggles. Every one of us has things that are difficult for us, that we have to work through. And so in a very real sense, all of us can be foolish, and all of us are messy because people are messy. So the main idea from this text is that God's glory is revealed when his people will embrace correction. So the main idea from this paragraph we're looking at today is that God's glory is revealed. That's the theme for the book. God's glory is revealed when his people embrace correction. And it's very important because we all need correction because we all have struggles. And so when we seek to correct foolishness, and then when we receive correction, God's glory is revealed in and through us. So when we are humble enough to receive correction and love enough to give grace-filled correction, then as a faith family, we will clearly display God's glory. So let's look together at three truths about correction and how we as a faith family, in the middle of our struggles, in the middle of our messiness, in the middle of our lives, which are far from perfect, how can we as a people display 
God's glory while we understand correction. Number one, let's look at the need for correction. So the first truth is the need, the need for correction. Let's read verse 10 again. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So what we see here is the Apostle Paul is telling Pastor Titus, hey, there's some foolishness in the church and it needs to be corrected because there's humans in there. And so he calls the leadership, in the previous verses, verses 5 through 9, it describes godly church leadership. So now he's calling the church leaders, he says, to address, to correct. He says, correct what? He says that there are these false teachers. And he says, there are many, Paul says. So there were apparently many people that, had, that were in the church that were false teachers. And so it was an unhealthy context. So apparently people were teaching, and they were spreading lies, and they were being very divisive. And Paul calls them insubordinate, which means rebellious. It means arrogant, unwilling to submit to authority or to leadership. He then calls them empty talkers. It means that they were very persuasive. They were able to say things that sounded really good, but really were hollow and were empty. So like a person that can say a lot or talk a lot, but say nothing. Know anyone like that? Don't, don't point or raise your hand. But we all know people that can talk, 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 but you're like, what are you saying? There's no substance. There's, it's just chatter. And that's what they were. It was empty talking. And then he calls them deceivers. They were deceiving people for shameful gain, it says. Now, when someone is deceiving, they can look good. All the appearances are being whole and spiritual, but on the inside, very self-focused. And so who specifically were these people that were causing division, and it says upsetting whole households? He identifies them. They were known. They were in leadership positions because they were teaching. And he calls them the circumcision party. You're thinking the circumcision party is not exactly like a fun party to go to when you're talking about circumcision. It's not the kind of party where you wear party hats and screamers and have a party. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a group, a group of people that were of the circumcision. Well, what is that? What is, what is this group? Who were they? Well, there were people that were Jewish in background. And so these are people that had Jewish heritage and Jewish tradition. And, and they were used to certain religious expressions, things like circumcision. The Jews circumcised their boys on the eighth day after birth. And so circumcision was an expression of their, of, of their faith in God. They also observed Passover. They observed the Sabbath. And they even had to eat certain foods. They had these dietary laws. And so certain foods that they could and could not eat. And so all of these were expressions of the faith of those that were Jewish. And so the circumcision party were people that were in the church who were teaching, that were saying, okay, you believe in Jesus? That's good. Jesus will save you because he died on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sins. And so you can repent and believe in Jesus and you can be saved. But you also have to observe the Old Testament laws like the, the food laws and circumcision and all of those kinds of things and sacrifices. And so they were saying, yes, it's Jesus plus Old Testament law. Now here's a question that we need to really think about. Has anyone ever been saved 
by observing the Old Testament law. What about believers in the Old Testament before Jesus came? Were they saved by observing the law, by keeping Passover, being circumcised, and doing all of the rituals, and observing the law that God gave them? Did that save them? Does this party have a point that needs to be considered? Well, let's look at this together for a few minutes. The law had two purposes. The first purpose for the Old Testament law is that it revealed God's character. And so the reason why God gave his people his law is so they would know what he is like. And God is holy. And he wanted a people to reflect his character that were equally holy. And so there's this mantra repeated, be holy for I am holy. And so God wanted his people that belonged to him to be set apart, to be holy, to be different from the rest of the nations. And so how are they to look different? Well, they would be circumcised and they would eat different things. And, and these were ways that they could demonstrate our God in heaven is real and he is holy and our lives look different from the rest of the nations. And so the law, first of all, was to reveal God's holy character. Second reason for the law was to reveal human sinfulness. The very same law that showed God as beautiful and transcendent, as holy, is the very same law that exposes humans as falling short. It exposes me and it exposes you. And we read the laws and we realize that we can't measure up, that we're not good enough. The law was intended to drive us to our knees and to say, God, I can't do this. I can't keep the law. And then to then place our faith in God. Like Abraham did. He was saved by his faith. Like Moses was. Like David was. Like every other believer in the Old Testament. They were saved because of their faith in God. Because the law showed them that they weren't good enough. That they couldn't reach God's holy standard of perfection. And things like circumcision and keeping the laws and all of these externals were simply meant to be external demonstrations of an internal trust in God, of their faith. Much like today, we have communion, which we'll do next week, and baptism. Those are our externals. Those are ways that we show our faith publicly. We do it once a month. We get together. We have communion. It's our way of saying, hey, you know what? Jesus died for us. And we do this, the symbol, and it shows the outward expression of our inward faith. And that's what the law was meant to be in the first place, and all those expressions of it. And so the law has never saved anyone. But God kept his standard. So someone had to keep the law. And so who kept the law? Who maintained God's holy standard? Because God never changed his standard that the law revealed. Jesus. That's the whole point of the gospel is that God has a holy standard and he won't diminish it. God upholds the holy standard, but his son maintained it. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. If you read Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount, this is repeated over and over in that section that Jesus came not to abolish, but to fulfill. So God's holy standard must be met. You must be perfect. You must be righteous. And you must be holy to be in God's presence. And Jesus was and continues to be 
And when someone repents and believes in Jesus, his holiness, his righteousness is imputed. It is transferred to you. You receive his Holy Spirit, which now God does accept you, and he does receive you because of the faith that you have expressed in Jesus, who paid it all, who maintained every law, who upheld God's holy standard. So the law shows God's holiness, and it shows our need for a Savior, and it all points to Christ. And so when you have people that are saying, you have to do these things, you have to maintain the Old Testament law to be saved, they're robbing the gospel of its glory, they're robbing the cross of its glory, they're robbing Jesus of what he came to do, which is to do it for us. So the gospel says, I'm not good enough, Jesus did it for me, and so these People that were legalistic were saying, no, you have to earn it. And so they were teaching legalism, which is this tendency in our hearts to measure our worth by our performance. Many of us in this room, I know I'm wired this way, and I have to repent daily of wanting to earn it and thinking subtly that I can somehow be good enough to earn God's favor. Or the cross saves me of past sins, and then I pick it up from there and have to continue to earn it. But that's just not true. I can't measure my worth by my performance. I measure my worth by the cross. Jesus did it, and I respond with faith. And so legalism is dangerous to the gospel, and we must not maintain that mentality like what was being taught in the first century church there in Crete. So he is calling the church to understand. He's calling the leadership to take action and not allow this very dangerous, unbiblical truth to be spread in the churches. And so verse 12, let's read that again. Here, here's, I mean, this is kind of mean, but verse 11 and 12, he says, they must be silenced, must be silenced, since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Isn't that a compliment? I mean, that's not very nice, but here's the thing. This was actually a 6th century B.C. Greek poet, all right? So this is one of their own people that said this about Cretans, that they were very immoral and lazy, and Paul's just quoting one of their own poets, and he says one of their, he calls him a prophet, says this, and so apparently there was a lot of immorality and laziness, and it just wasn't a very, it wasn't a great place to live at the time. And apparently it was still true 600 years later. And it says they must be silenced because they're upsetting. They're, they're causing division in the church, and it's for shameful gain. It's about their own selfish agenda. But see, guys, here's the problem that we have to remember. As we read this, and it's absolute truth revealed to us from God, but then you know what happens? We think, eh, well, I'm not of the circumcision party. That's not me. I'm not preaching that, so I'm good. I can just go get some lunch in a few minutes, and I don't have to worry about today's sermon because it doesn't really apply to me. If I were someone preaching that, then maybe I'd have to consider changing my ways. But I'm not, so I'm good. Halas, right? We have to look at this, that there are timeless truths that are revealed here that apply to all of us. The selfishness. Selfishness, sin, destroys relationships. Selfish motives. I'm telling you, we have to think through this. Let me help you 
think through what happens when we have selfish motives and what it does to our relationships. Those of you that are married, this is huge. But even if you're single, I'm telling you, coworkers, other friends, sin destroys relationships. It usually begins when you have some kind of a struggle. Maybe work is very difficult. Maybe you have a health problem. Or something happens in life and it's just a difficult, difficult circumstances beyond your control. But what happens is whenever hard things happen, we have to then turn to God. We have to draw near to Him and say, Lord, I need you every hour. I need you. And we should turn to Him when it's hard. But a lot of times, what do we do? We turn to other things to find comfort and to find joy and to find meaning and to find coping. It's just trying to just survive. And so we turn to other things. And what happens is three things happen. The first thing that happens to us is we get very self-centered. We become very self-centered. And so what happens is we have rejected God because of the pain, the frustration, whatever it might be. And so we become very self-centered. And we slowly drift away from God. And so not because God is no longer the center. We're not living for His glory. We're not delighting in Him. We have created a void in our heart because we pushed God out. You see, but here's the problem. Your heart's not going to stay empty. You're going to fill it. Guess with what? With you. When you push God out and you reject Him, the void will not stay there. You will, by your very nature, we will all fill it. And we will fill it with ourselves, with our own selfish desires. And so then what happens is we start looking around to our wife, husband, friends, whomever, and we start asking ourselves, what's best for me? Very subtly. But we approach our wife or our husband or whomever, and, and we start asking whether it's in her head or whether it's out loud, what's best for me? We become very self-centered. We need to stop right there, but usually we don't. And so it progresses to the second one. After we become self-centered, you know what happens after that? We become self-ruled, ruling, having authority. So all of a sudden, God's no longer the authority. I'm the authority. I focus on me and what I want selfishly. And so now all of a sudden, God's wise and loving rule is rejected. And so now I rule. And so when I look at other people, my wife, my children, friends, I see them as my subjects because I'm the king. I'm the queen of my world, and I rule my world. And so because I'm self-centered, now self-ruled, I begin to see people very subtly, but we do. We see them as our subjects to control, to manipulate. So I look to my wife, and I say, it's up to you to make me happy. Well, she can't. She's human. I was made for God, not for any other human being. So we become very self Focused, self-ruled. And then, if you don't stop it there, you get to the third part. The third one in progression is self-sufficient. Then you, th you think you're on your own. You don't think you need God anymore. And so why would you need anyone else? And especially if, if they try to correct you lovingly, forget that. No, 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 I'm not, I can't hear you. We don't want to listen because it hurts. But the problem is that we have rejected God's rule we have rejected being focused on Him, and so now we're self-sufficient, and so now we reject even people. And then we say, oh, I'm all alone. No one loves me. No one cares about me. 
And we get very self-ruled here, very self-sufficient. And so what happens is we talk to people, whether verbally or just subtly, and we think to ourselves, okay, I don't mind you, but I don't need your help. And I sure don't need your correction. And so I don't mind if you're hanging around as long as you please me, but don't even try to even lovingly tell me where I'm wrong because I won't have it because I'm self-sufficient. Now, let me give you an illustration of how this works here in Abu Dhabi. You have a couple, name the country, and they move here in search of adventure or more money, and they're very excited. But you know what happens very early on? They realize something. Living here is hard, and they get lost every time they get in the car, and it's really hot. And all of a sudden, the money isn't going as far as they thought it would. And all of a sudden, living here, they realize, oh, it's not utopia after all. And so what happens is they should turn to God. They should repent. They should say, God, I trust you. God, help us. And they should seek help. And they should look for a faith family. And they should really turn to Christ and turn to each other and cling to each other and be in a better budget. Say, okay, God brought us here and be on mission. Instead of turning to Christ, instead of turning to God's people and clinging to each other, what do they do? The three things are going to happen. They get self-centered. And, so, and now the husband focuses on whatever Abu Dhabi has to offer him, and the wife focuses on whatever she wants to focus on, and they both get very self-centered. And so individually, they turn to their own idols to find comfort. So then they become self-ruled. So the wife looks at her husband and says, you're not making me happy. You're not home enough. You work too many hours, and I don't have enough money to go shopping. And, and so now she sees her husband as the problem, and so now she is wanting to control and manipulate, but he's no better. He's checked out. He's just as bad. It might look different, but he now wants to control and manipulate her for his own purposes. And so they're, both of them are self-centered, and both of them are now self ruled and now they're not even getting along and so now they're both self-sufficient and they're roommates yeah they're in the same house same bed no passion no communication no joy two separate people they're, they're not one flesh as God revealed and yes, it began with challenges. No one's denying that. It was hard, objectively hard, but they didn't turn to Christ and they would not receive correction. And so it just spirals out of control. And now they're in counseling and now, well, I don't love you anymore. I never loved you and all of this junk. That's not even true. But it could happen to you with a coworker. This is one application of this in a marriage, but it can happen with a coworker, with a fellow church member. It can happen with any relationship where it becomes divisive and toxic. And what we need is to receive correction. For someone to speak truth and say, will you stop? Will you repent? Will, will you turn back to God and see your wife or husband as a blessing? And they're not the enemy. And we need to be humble enough to receive correction and to lovingly give correction. God's glory is displayed when his people embrace correction. And he's given us a faith family to live this out. We all have a need for correction. We all have that need. Number two, 
the means. What is the means of correction? Read verse 13. He gives us, so he tells us the need for it. Verse 13, he tells us how, the means of correction. He says, this testimony is true that they're liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul agrees. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. He calls the elders, he calls the church leaders to rebuke these leaders sharply. The word there refers to cut deeply. And so he says, correct them deeply, quickly, swiftly. Don't waste time. Correct them. Who likes that? Any of you like doing that? No? I don't like it. No one enjoys this. This is not fun for church leadership. But the scriptures here are calling elders to correct those in the faith family. But here's the immediate context. It's very important. You have people that were teachers that had official leadership positions in the church that were teaching things that were not true biblically, teaching things that were divisive and they were arrogant and they were causing division in the, in the families. And so right here, God is revealing the specific means of how do we receive correction well, God uses spiritually mature people to correct other people. God uses people who love each other to then correct one another. Can God use a dream or a vision to correct your what? Yes, He can. But the, but the pattern, the consistent pattern in the New Testament is that He uses people who love each other enough to go and correct other people. So again, the context here is leaders in the church that are overseeing what is being taught in the faith family. And so everything that is taught at ECC Off Island must be biblical. It has to be. And by the way, not just from the front here on Friday mornings, but in our children's classes, in our youth classes, in our home groups, and every single venue in our church where the word is being talked about and taught in the ministry, in the gathering of our church, has to be biblical. And so I'm serious. If you ever go to a home group or if you ever hear anything taught from the front that you believe is not biblical, you must say something. Not on Facebook. I didn't say gossip. I didn't say go, go create your own other group and talk about what, no, no, no. I didn't say be divisive yourself, okay? If you go to a home group, and I'm serious, if you hear something that in your spirit you think, oh, I don't know about that. I don't think that's right biblically. You can go talk to the home group leader in private and say, hey, can you explain that to me? Because I'm not really sure I know what you mean by what you said the other day in the home group. Go talk to that person. And if you're not getting anywhere, if that's not working, then come talk to one of the elders and say, you know, this was taught. I, I'm just confused. I don't really know. Can you help me with this? Because sometimes we as elders don't even know what's being taught because I don't go to every group. Now, I am rotating, but I'm not there every single week. And so we need to make sure that as a faith and that we are really guarding that what is being taught and said is biblical. And so this is just maintaining the purity of our church. And we all need to be doing this. Now, if you hear someone that is saying something divisive, or that's gossip, well, you should go to the person and say, you know, maybe you should go to the person you're talking about. Like, why are you telling me about that other person? And so if one of you has a problem with someone else, then you should go to that person 
and work it out. If you hear gossip, encourage that person to go talk to whomever they were talking about. But see, here's the thing. We can all do this. And sometimes it's, you're not even thinking about it. And it just kind of happens. You just kind of say it. It can happen to any of us. If you do and you hear about it and you know who you've offended, go to that person. Ask for forgiveness. It's important for us to maintain unity in our church. And if you hear someone talking about church leadership, now that's where it's hard. Okay, I'm being honest with you. This is tricky and it's, and it's difficult. Pray for discernment. If you hear someone that is talking bad about whomever church leadership decisions, and encourage that person, hey, just go talk to the elder or whomever it might be. We want to have an open-door policy, and we want to talk about whatever is troubling you. We want to make sure that our church really does have unity. But the goal, we must not forget, is that we would all love God more. And so the means here, the means here, is people loving people enough to go and talk to them. He says here in verse 13 that they may be sound in the faith. That's what Paul wants from them, that they may be sound in the faith. That's what we want. Unity in our church, all of us would be sound. Verse 14, here's what he says. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth, so he's saying, don't believe lies. People who have turned away from the truth and are believing myths and man-made things that's not in the Bible, we must all believe the truth. And here's why. Because Satan's lying to us every single day. Every single one of us that knows and loves Jesus, we are attacked by our enemy. He doesn't want you to be healthy or our church to be healthy. He wants us defeated. He wants us to be struggling. He wants us to be bickering and and to not have any unity. And so you are going to hear lies in your head that come from the enemy. He'll say things like, you're worthless. He'll say things like, your future is bleak. He'll say things to you like, you're not a good mother. Or just look at you. You're not a very good husband. You're not a very good father. And he'll say things like, you're all alone. There's no one to help you. All these lies, they're lies from Satan because you are precious to God. You are not worthless. You matter. And he loves you so much that his son died for you. You matter. You are valuable. And your future is not bleak. Your future is bright. And heaven awaits us. Your future is not dark. It's not. I don't know what it looks like. But I trust God that he has a good plan for your life. And through the power of the Spirit and through correction, you can grow as a mother and as a father. You are not a bad father. And if you think you are, well, God can help you grow in that area. And I can tell you this, you are not alone. Look around the room. You are not alone. There are people that want to get to know you and to love you. And so I want to encourage you today before you leave, to try and meet someone you haven't met yet. Because I'm pretty sure there are people in this room that you haven't met. And you're going to want to go in the back in about 10 minutes, and you want to get some you know, coffee or some cookies or whatever, and then go home. Well, can I, can I just encourage and or challenge you to meet someone that you don't know and become their friend? Make sure you're in a home group so you can have that support. You can't do this alone. 
and you're not supposed to. If you are a member of this church, you already know this, but we have a covenant. And so every person that has committed to this church has signed a covenant, an agreement that we are in a relationship together and we agree to follow Christ together. I want to read to you an excerpt of our covenant. It says, I will protect the unity of our church by committing to brotherly love, humility, gentleness, encouraging one another, and admonishing one another when necessary. So if you're a member, then you have signed a covenant saying that you're going to admonish one another even when it's difficult because we all need correction from time to time. And so what is the key for us to have hearts that are, have the strength and the courage to humbly receive correction and then to lovingly give correction? Verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelievers, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. See, a pure heart will receive correction humbly and will then see the, what's at stake and lovingly go and correct a brother or sister who is struggling, not to get in their business, but because you care about them, to help them. We need to help each other. And it says here, that you have to have a pure heart. See, when you repent and believe in the gospel, your heart is changed. So to the pure in heart, then you're pure. But the ones that are defiled, the ones that don't know Jesus, everything is impure. He's talking about a changed heart. He's talking here about what happens when you truly repent and believe in the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes into you and you're transformed. Your heart is radically changed and now you... Don't want to do the things that you used to do because you're different on the inside. How does this work? Well, if you're here and you have never believed in the gospel, if you've never repented of your sins and turned to Jesus alone for your salvation, then that's where it starts. You believe in the gospel and God will change your heart. But if you're here and you've already done that, but life is still hard and I acknowledge that, what do you do? You abide in Jesus. You spend time with him. And your heart will change. You read the Bible slowly. You spend time thinking about it, meditating, and applying it to your life. And then you pray. You connect with Christ by abiding in him, and your heart will change. But God usually uses people to begin the process. There's a need for correction. There's a means for correction as we love one another. Last, as we close, the goal of correction. What is the goal of correction? Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. These false teachers, these legalists, were trying to impress God by what they did. They were trying to do enough good to earn God's favor. And what does Paul call them? Detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. And so the, quote, good things that they were doing... On the outside, they looked religious, they looked good, but on the inside, very far from God. Very far. So our external religious attempts to reach God and earn His favor won't get you there. It's only by faith, by trusting in Jesus alone. And so what is this relationship of, of receiving correction and living by faith and having your heart changed? Well, the goal of correction, what did the, these people who were disobedient, what they, it says they did not know God. 
They, they said they did. They professed to know God, but they actually didn't know God. And so the goal in receiving correction is that we would know God. That's the goal. That's why you exist. You exist for God, not for anything else. He wants to know you. He wants you to know Him and to enjoy Him. And He'll give you a future. He'll give you hope and joy and comfort. As we read earlier in verse 13, that we would be sound in the faith. And you can experience God's presence and His approval. And you can receive that humbly. Whereas these false teachers, there's no evidence that they did. They stayed in their foolishness. We had opportunity to humbly receive truth and respond where now we say we know God and we're transformed by Him. I'm going to give you a brief story. I know it's about time is about up, but when I was in college, I had met this beautiful blonde up here in the front row, and, and we were dating, and I so loved her, wanted to marry her, and I really liked her, but I did not like her mother. To be honest, it's terrible. I'll be honest with you. Her mom and I, could not get along. We would fight and misunderstandings, and I didn't like her, and I would speak poorly. Of, I was 18, but nonetheless, I would speak poorly of her, and it was just a real problem. And I had a really good friend, actually a roommate when I was in school. His name is Eli Vega. And he came to me and said, Matthew, you have a terrible attitude towards Bonnie's mother. I said, well, you don't know her. He said, yeah, I do, actually. He actually had met her. He didn't know her, but he knew her. And he said, I don't care. I don't care what she does. He says, you're wrong. Your attitude towards your future mother-in-law is terrible. Aren't you called to lead Bonnie and your future children? Yeah, I had nothing. I, I just sat there, and I felt the immediate conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that began the process where I went at the time, my girlfriend, I said, please forgive me for a terrible attitude towards your mother. And I've spoken to Bonnie's mother, and it took a few years to not lie to you. We were just so different personality. But we now have a reconciled relationship. And a lot of that old junk has been forgotten, and it's definitely forgiven. And I can say with a clear conscience that I love Betty McWright and that I respect her, and I'm thankful for her, and we have a good relationship. But I'm telling you, the process began when a friend loved me enough to say, Matthew, you are wrong. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit worked in my life enough where I was humble enough to say, no, you're right, and I don't want to live like this. And that's the way God works in our lives, is we are to encourage one another to spur each other on to good works, but so here's what is the goal. The goal is captured beautifully in Acts 3, 19 and 20. The Apostle Peter preaching, he says, Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Why? Repent. Why? That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. When we repent, we experience God's presence and we're refreshed. If you have a sin that is unconfessed, that is you have not repented of, if you have a relationship that's not reconciled, I can assure you, you're not going to experience the refreshing presence of God. And so the whole point of correction is that we would experience God's presence in a deeper way, that we would know Him, 
live for his glory, live for him and not for ourselves, and that we would all do that individually and as a people. God's glory is displayed when his people embrace correction. We all need it. See, the gospel radically changes us, sustains us, and it accomplishes the goal of living for God's glory and not our own. So may we seek to have humble hearts to receive correction and love enough to give correction. Will you pray with me?